Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by Tim Goodson. Tim is an energy analyst at the International Energy Agency and was a key contributor to the Net Zero Pathways report that the International Energy Agency released back in May. Uh, Tim, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Luke. Great to be here. Now, Tim, I obviously uh, I, I uh, read the Net Zero Pathways report with a great deal of interest um, when it was released uh, back in May, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, it seems like just yesterday, but at the same time, uh, a lot's happened since then and uh, yeah, been a busy few months uh, since. It certainly has been and uh, I've just been uh, reading over it again in preparation for our chat and I just want to say congratulations. It is an absolutely outstanding contribution to um, this this debate which is uh, is uh, coming to uh, a boiling point really in the lead up to, to Glasgow and I've got to say it, it really doesn't mince words um if you anyone that is uh, listening in that hasn't read it i encourage you if you if you're not game to read the, the the several hundred pages of the report at least read the summary for policymakers um because it's it's pretty pointed it remind us it reminds us that the uh, energy sector is responsible for for three quarters of global greenhouse gas emissions it characterizes the pathway to net zero as narrow but achievable and i it, and it but it says um that it will take nothing less than a complete transformation of how we produce transport and consume energy and not only that tim it says uh, we need to start the transformation now if we have any hope of hitting that um net zero by 2050 goal so it's, it's grounded it is as i say very pointed so and and it, it strikes me that there's there's a, a framing and an urgency in that document that is not necessarily something that we're used to seeing in mm. international energy agencies documents so it's just interesting before we dive into the detail if you could could unpack you know the the conversations and and the, and the thinking that that um, uh, went on around around the team around how to how to position uh, the conversation around this net zero, zero pathways report at the outset so really i guess across all ia reports the ambition is just to be as clear and as black and white as possible and just mm. let numbers do the talking wherever we can and so here as soon as we set ourselves that objective of putting forward a report that charted a, a pathway out to net zero um the numbers very quickly are very evident we we all know um, we've seen the latest ipcc report this co-red red for humanity and and the scale of the challenge in front of us so when it came to communicating this report on what needs to happen in the energy sector it was very clear that we had to put forward messages that were just black and white saying if we don't hit a certain milestone by a certain date then our chances of actually getting to that net zero in 2050 are next to none Mm. it's obviously it's a tough message to swallow but we saw it as the messages um directly coming out of the modeling work that need to be there to inform policymakers as we head into cop and and it was um, a product that was also requested by the COP presidency, by the UK government. So it's really something where we had to just bring all these analytical tools to the table to then allow the, the politics, hopefully, to bring us in the right direction. Uh, one of the most striking things about the report are some of those, uh, the articulation of near-term milestones for mm. what we need to do immediately, particularly in the 2020s. And it's really one of the key messages of the report um, that this, this next nine or so years is kind of when the the race to net zero by 2050 is either going to be won or lost. Is that a fair characterisation? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that um, is often overlooked when we're talking about whether we can get to net zero by 2050 or not. Not only do we need to look at that destination, but we need to consider what's the cumulative emissions through to 2050, mm. respecting the CO2 budgets that would allow us to stay within the in the 1.5 degrees um, band of warming. And so if we look at what the IPCC is putting forward in their work, then basically we need a, a one-third reduction in emissions already by 2030. And so given the trajectory we're on today, that's a, an incredibly tough challenge sort of to, to turn the ship and be able to get to that destination of around 21 gigatons of emissions in 2030. But what this work shows is um, we do have uh, the technologies at a mature and commercial scale today to be able to achieve and unlock those those emissions reductions to 2030. So that's why we're really putting forward this message of just a, a massive scale up of existing clean energy technologies over the next 10 years. And also trying to couple that message on scaling up an emissions reduction with all the opportunities that come out of the, the terrible situation of the COVID-19 pandemic, but the amount of money that's being unlocked in that space there and what the opportunities of sustainable recoveries could represent for getting us onto this onto this path. So that's really where things like energy efficiency come to play, where you can have big bang for your buck in terms of emissions reductions, employment creation, economic growth, and you can roll out those policies in the next couple of years. So yeah, as we've seen in many places around the world with governments putting money towards efficiency as part of their recovery packages, but some of our latest work in the last month or so has shown that we need a, a much bigger scaling up of that money going towards sustainable recoveries. Well, indeed, we were talking to the um, the European Commission's Ruth Kempner just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we we talked about that exact fact, the sort of the, the confluence of um, crises, if you will, um, you know, the, the need to chart a course to recovery that's been driven by the, the COVID crisis, but also you know the, the the great challenge we face when it comes to climate change and the need to to transform key sections of the economy. I was interested to see in terms of that that near term investment, and you know. My job is to kind of try, try and take com- complex things and, and dumb them down, Tim. So um, forgive me for this, but you could almost <laughs> characterise it as the stuff that we, the technology that we have now, um, the, the things that we know how to do now, and that you know that probably includes renewables and it probably includes energy efficiency, um, electrification. Those things, um, those things are, are very much uh, prominent in the IS report. We just need to lean into them massively and get as much of it done as quickly as possible. To as you say. Um, uh, you know, bring down those cumulative emissions and keep us keep ourselves within that that 1.5 degree scenario. And while we're doing that, um, simultaneously, we need massive investment in in innovation in the technologies Absolutely. that we're going to need in the, mm. the 2030s and the 2040s, so they're mm. ready to go once we've really got the ball rolling on some of those things that we know how to do now. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. So if we if we look at I guess what needs to happen on the act now, deploy existing technology side of the coin, then if we look at um, solar PV and wind, for instance, already by 2030, we need to quadruple uh, the capacity we're installing each year. So 2020 was a record year for a capacity around 250 gigawatts combined, and that needs to go over 1,000 by the time we get to 2030. So that's just a... Um, a daunting rate of scale up, I guess, and and we can put it in by in perspective by saying that uh, that that one thousand gigawatts in twenty thirty that's over twenty times Australia's total installed capacity for electricity generation today. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a real scale of ramp up. Um, 
And then on the end use side of things, electrification, electric vehicles, we're still less than 5% of global passenger car sales, which are electric models today. And that needs to get to 60% by 2030. So it's an, an 18 fold ramp up in the numbers of vehicles being sold. So yeah, it's a, it's a daunting task just on, on that side. But at the same time, as you mentioned, we need to be thinking, okay, what are the solutions we need to put in place to ensure that the, the hard to abate sectors today, such as you know, iron and steel, aviation, heavy transport, we don't exactly have mature technologies on the table today to decarbonize those end uses. But by the time we get to 2030, we need to have gone through the R&D processes, be deploying technologies, have commercial technologies available to start mass scale deployment in the 2030s. So it's a, it's definitely a challenge for governments to be focusing on on those two at the same time, but um, they definitely, they can't be antagonistic. They have to be happening in parallel. Yeah, in, indeed. And I suppose you talk about the renewables and the electrification and the other the other big theme, theme uh, as I said, is, is energy efficiency and that I think the number is um, a 4, 4% year-on-year improvement in uh, end-use efficiency. Um, or is it to 2030? Is it every year to 2030 or is it by 2030 we've hit that? Yeah, so average annual improvement of, of energy intensity of 4.2% between 2020 and 2030. So we look at what we've achieved in the last 10 years and that's about double the average rate in the last 10 years. So again, it's a it's a daunting ramp up. We need to be looking across the board, all opportunities for energy efficiency. So we're talking building retrofits and, and really coupling those retrofit programs with sustainable reco- recoveries from COVID. We're talking still investing in improving the efficiency of say trucks of internal combustion engines because for some of those um, end uses such as trucking, we're still going to be selling some internal combustion engines over the coming decade. Um, And we're obviously talking across industry, uh, wherever there's opportunities to tap further efficiency, that needs to happen um, as soon as possible this decade. So really, we we front load a lot of that energy efficiency action in the 2020s, just because, as I mentioned earlier, that's action that we can put in place immediately. A lot of it's cost-effective action, so it can be reducing bills for consumers. Um, it's also assisting us with energy security because obviously the energy we're not using is 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 the safest energy in that sense. Um, so yeah, really, and energy um, energy efficiency is just critical across all those angles. And here we're talking not just uh, say technical improvements and then so getting a more efficient appliance, but also more structural shifts and so shifting to say electricity consuming technologies, that's unlocking big um, efficiency benefits in many cases as well. And could we take the example of a heat pump, heat pumps can be at least three or four times more efficient than a gas boiler. So by electrifying, we're also really um, improving the efficiency of the overall economy. Yeah, I guess the other thing that strikes me with the the efficiency piece is um, when you've got even electricity systems that that still have significant amounts of uh, fossil fuel generation in them, the efficiencies are something you can do in the near term to to, to bring down those cumulative emissions. Um, and of course, you're making the task of fuel switching, which we're inevitably going to be um, be facing mm. in you know late this decade and beyond. You're making it that much easier. Because you 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 are, your task in terms of fuel switching is confined to what you actually need to do. You're not sort of um, uh, trying to transition uh, inefficient end use um, to new, new forms yeah. of of uh, fuel or generation. Absolutely, and that's 
that's certainly the case um, when we look at, say, the building sector, where um, if you're trying to electrify heat demand, then you're going to be increasing electricity demand um, considerably. And if you're not in parallel improving, say, the building envelope to make it um, more efficient, then firstly, you're going to need to install a bigger heat pump to service that load. You're probably also going to need to have that heat bump running harder, running at a higher temperature and so being less efficient. And so overall, you're going to be paying higher electricity bills, probably a higher investment for that bigger heat pump and um, a higher electricity demand. So really any action that we can take to improve energy efficiency in parallel to those efforts um, to electrify is hugely beneficial for the consumer um, who's actually you know, living in that building or driving that vehicle, but also for the power system, as you mentioned, because we have this 1,000 gigawatts we need to be installing per year of solar PV and wind in 2030. And any slowdown on efficiency improvements in this path may means that we need to be installing even more capacity on the renewable side to ensure we can actually decarbonize the power sector. So really there's, there's compounding challenges there if we don't act on energy efficiency. So obviously it's improving the efficiency of the, you know, the electric vehicles and the heat pumps, but also across the board for your appliances, your electric motors in industry. So we need these these minimum energy performance standards really stepping up and shifting us to the most efficient technologies available as soon as possible in order to to keep us on this NZD pathway. And when we start talking about efficiency in renewables and and electrification, I suppose the thing that's sitting there in the background and, and which is talked about in, in the report is the need for flexibility as mm. well in terms of demand. Do you want to just talk to the role of, of flexibility and particularly demand response in enabling this transition to take place at this kind of scale that we're talking about? If we think about what's happening in power systems, then we're shifting from, a, I guess, a baseload dispatchable um, uh, generator-based system towards one with these much more variable generators, the solar PV and, and the wind. And on the demand side, what's happening is we're getting um, a huge growth in demand coming from electric vehicles, from heat pumps we've discussed. We also should be mentioning electrolyzers for hydrogen, et cetera. So you're getting this ramping up of demand, but what we need to be looking at as well as what that means sort of a, from a volumetric perspective across the year is when is that demand coming online and is it coming online at the same time that we're going to have renewables or wind um, power generation available. So what we do is we do hour by hour modelling of both the supply side and the demand side by end use um, for the electricity systems and really look at um, what's the need for flexibility for ramping capacity to ensure that we're, we're having that balancing between supply and demand each hour. Um, and doing that across major power systems across the world in this NZD pathway, we've seen that the actual flexibility, the hour-to-hour -hour ramping needs are probably or well, are going to quadruple between today and 2050. So in terms of how we actually have that power system flexibility in place. Obviously, we've got huge deployment of, of um, you know, battery technologies. We've got improvements in transmission and distribution networks. They're all playing a role, but what's really important and what's uh, it's one of the more emerging technologies is what's happening on the demand side and the role that the demand side can play in both mitigating the growth and that flexibility uh, need and also providing um, some of those flexibility resources. So obviously, if we think that in Australia, primarily a summer, summer evening peaking system with cooling representing a, a large proportion of that peak demand, and that's when we're having strains on the system, anything we can do to improve the efficiency of buildings that are being cooled and of the air conditioners that are cooling them, that's going to reduce that peak demand. So reduce the flexibility needs, reduce the costs of um, gold plating the network to make sure it functions and delivers electricity at that time. So 
that's uh, extremely valuable energy efficiency right there. But then there's also the huge potential of actually being able to modulate and shift some of the demand, um, some of the electricity demand across buildings, across um, transport with smart charging of electric vehicles. So ensuring that we we go forward and, and make sure we're looking at this you know, overall energy efficiency requirement with minimum performance standards, but also making sure we're building into the products that we're buying over the coming decades the capacity to control them remotely, to smart charge your electric vehicles so they can actually be a resource to make sure that our power systems do have the flexibility they need, that they can operate with these increasing shares of renewables. So that's definitely a, a point we push strongly and um, also pushing the point that you need the, the policy environment environment that enables consumers to actually bring their small load to aggregate that together and take it to a market so the power system can actually use that resource. And we obviously need the incentives for consumers to do that. So the pricing structures that uh, enable them to be rewarded for providing these sorts of services. Yeah, that's the trick. It's kind of an emerging area. I'm not sure it's one that everybody anybody's completely cracked no. yet, but unlocking that, that value, which is dispersed across the economy, but in aggregate is so significant and so important for this transition is, is something that, uh, you know, is, is very much top of mind in, in Australia, mm. as I know it, it is in, in, in Europe and places like California. Um, it, the, there's a lot of smart people working on it. The, the, the thing that always or increasingly is striking us here at the EEC is um, the value of energy efficiency at particular times of the day becoming increasingly critical. So, you know, that 5 to 9 p.m. when the solar is starting to ramp down, but energy use is starting to go up, the value of that unit of, of energy efficiency is is that much greater. And so th- thinking about energy efficiency um, improvements is not... It's not everything's equal. Not every unit is equal, and that's something which is we haven't been used to thinking about traditionally in this in this sector. But the way that load interacts with a you know a, a high penetration renewable energy system is kind of the name of the game moving forward, right? And so um, it's uh, it's a, it's a bit of a um, consciousness shift, if I can put it that way, for the sector. But it's also an incredible opportunity if we can if we can play that proactive role in, in supporting that transition um, it's going to be it's it's going to enable it to happen uh, quicker uh, it's going to be enabled to happen in a way that's more cost effective and it's going to unlock benefits for consumers as well yeah absolutely and um, and one of the things in my view that's quite important there is uh, obviously we can have manual direct consumer action that's that's shifting demand in the, in the way we need it but we can't be expecting every consumer to be monitoring what's switched on when they're doing their washing the whole time so trying to automate these processes as much as possible and ensure that the consumer can have the same if not um, you know, similar levels of, of comfort and be rewarded for this shifting and i think it's it's yeah as you mentioned the differing time value of efficiency is is just critical and then looking at say the from the buildings example again um improvements to thermal inertia of the building and what that allows us to do in in terms of can you slightly pre-cool your building to a lower temperature when electricity is cheap when it's available and then uh you use the inertia of your building, the fact it's very efficient to make sure that uh, you're still comfortable all through that time, but you're, you're using less electricity during the peak moments. So uh, lots of exciting opportunities there, that's for sure. Hey team, on uh, Wednesday 
10th of November, we are launching the fourth edition of our annual energy briefing for business navigating a dynamic energy landscape. And it is an all-star cast. Of course, New South Wales Treasurer and Minister for Energy and Environment, Matt Keane. We've got Sally Townsend, uh, Head of Sustainability at Blackmore's Group, and they're kicking some massive goals over at Blackmore. She's going to share uh, their story with us. Uh, Wei Su, System Lead for Sustainable Corporates at Climeworks Australia, and Climeworks have just released a, a really valuable report on best practice in net zero commitments for corporates. Uh, so she's going to take us through that. And of course, last but certainly not least, uh, our own Holly Taylor, Head of Projects at the Energy Efficiency Council, who spearheads all of our business engagement work in the energy briefing uh, portfolio in particular. So this is an event you do not want to miss. Uh, to register, visit energyefficiencyexpo.com.au. All right, now back to the show. I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about those near-term milestones. You, you made the point that um, that it's really important to have these sort of way stations along that journey mm. journey to net zero. And and there's some there's some interesting ones in here. Uh, I'll just pick, for example, the building sector. It, you talk about um, the need by 2030 to have all new buildings being zero carbon ready there's a few nations around the world that have have taken that that idea to heart by 2035 um, most appliances and cooling systems sold are best in class and by 2040 you've got 50 percent of existing buildings are retrofitted to that same standard of being zero carbon ready so thinking about okay well let's let's make sure our, our, the the buildings we're building new are ready for this you know this the, the world that they'll be inhabiting in 2050 at the same time as ramping up our activity to ensure that um, you know the, the 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 vast bulk of buildings which are already built are being improved over time um, it, it sort of takes me takes me back to the conversations we've we've had over time with uh, folk in Europe um, uh, around that uh, the, the, the concept of a renovation wave um, it's just to pick one sector you think about the, what we would need to do in terms of building renovations to make you know the vast bulk of our building stock net zero carbon ready and by 2050 uh, your report says 85 percent of existing buildings are at that point it's quite a lot of work <laughs> and again sort of underlines the fact that we kind of need to get started right uh, absolutely it's a hell of a lot of work but um, it, it brings a huge amount of opportunities as well we've done employment analysis around this and shown that more generally energy efficiency and especially retrofits being a big component of them but um uh, other other peripheral actions um, linked to energy transitions can um, create 16 million new jobs between today and and just 2030 even and so there's huge opportunities there from that employment perspective but then to come back to energy and emissions um, it's just absolutely critical to be able to hit those 2050 targets so as you mentioned, there's the need to put in place the building codes to make sure that what we're building new is aligned with um, our objective for 2050. So making sure that those new buildings are ready for a zero carbon 2050 world. So that could mean, well, it does mean being extremely efficient and it could mean using electricity or renewables or in, in very few cases using, say, a, a vector such as gas networks that might be fully decarbonized by biomethane, by for instance. But that's, that's a, a very um, limited number of contexts. And so we need to do that on new buildings to make sure that we're not 
I guess, shooting ourselves in the foot and, and creating new buildings that then need to be retrofit further on down the path. Mm. But then also, as you mentioned, we have to be addressing what's going on with the existing building stock because the vast majority, especially in, say, the European Union, even in Australia, will still be standing in 2050. And so if we're not doing anything about that existing building stock, we're simply not going to be able to bring down emissions um, and mitigate electricity demand growth to the extent needed to actually hit net zero. So for these existing buildings, it really renovations um, to both improve insulation, thermal performance, but also do that fuel switching. So installing heat pumps, et cetera, is absolutely critical. And um, we actually did some analysis on the implications of delays to this retrofitting. And so, for instance, if we failed to accelerate renovations and retrofits this decade to bring those existing buildings up to this zero carbon ready standard, then our analysis finds that we'd be increasing electricity demand for space heating and space cooling by around 20%. So mm. that's that's mm. adds up to a very big number at a global level when you're increasing that demand by 20%. And again, that's just imposing another uh, another burden on the power sector that needs to fully decarbonise. And so that means, again, more solar PV panels and, and, and wind turbines that need to be installed to actually get us to net zero. Yeah, yeah. I want to just spend um, a little bit of time on uh, a, an element of, of the report, um, which you know is starting to emerge in some IEA documents I've been reading over the last few years, but was was um, really prominent um, in in this one in particular, which is the idea around uh, you know almost a, a citizen centred approach, sort of acknowledging that you know the transformation that the IEA is saying will need to take place for us to hit that that net zero target is 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 very significant. Um, and it's going to be reliant on two things: effectively, the social license of governments uh, to 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 progress and pursue these changes, but also, you know, millions of consumer choices um, around some of the things you've been talking about: retrofitting a house, mm. purchasing a heat pump, purchasing an electric vehicle. Um, there's a lot of small choices that are going to cumulatively um, support uh, this this journey to net zero and and the community's got to be brought along on that journey and ultimately feel like they're you know they're they're contributing to a um, an outcome that's going to work for them both in the near term and also in 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 the long term um uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how the how your team uh, thought about how to characterize that element of the challenge which one might argue is slightly outside of the iea's usual remit yeah sure sure and um these are some of the the very interesting points that can really be make or break for whether we actually succeed in transitioning to this net zero trajectory. So yeah. certainly it's necessary to look beyond exactly what's happening in the energy sector and think how's that, what does that mean for an ordinary citizen's life, for instance? And so very important to look at the affordability questions. And so we've done a lot of analysis on whether, uh, for instance, the additional investments that we might need in energy efficiency, what does that mean for a household? And um, in most cases, especially across all advanced economies, we're seeing that actually going down this net zero pathway, yes, it means more upfront capital investments. Mm-hmm. Households are actually better off and spending less of their income on energy expenditure because um, the investments they've made mean they've got uh, significant reductions in, in household energy bills. And so over, overall, they're, they're much better off. So I think it's, it's really important to go down that angle and, and stress these sort of benefits. Um, and then also empowering consumers to say that, yes, there's a lot of decisions that are sort of meta-scale policy decisions that are needed to get us on this pathway. You know, 
we look at what happens in the power sector and building a new low carbon iron and steel plant, et cetera. That's not in every citizen that's involved in those choices. And we have around 40% of emissions reductions that come from such sort of, uh, let's say, non-citizen related actions. Mm. But there's the majority, around 55% of the emissions reductions that as you mentioned, involve a, a consumer making a decision. Obviously, that decision is going to be guided by price frameworks, by policies and by the structures that, that governments are putting in place. But consumers are needed to be making that choice of do I install a heat pump or a gas boiler? Do I buy an electric vehicle? So there's definitely a big role there. And obviously, we need to make those choices, the low-carbon choices, the attractive ones. Um, but I think another point that's really important to stress here is it's not just a consumer making a choice about what technology to to, to, to adopt. It's not just a pure technology substitution. Yeah. To actually get the full emissions reductions we need, we need consumers to be making more lifestyle-related choices. So this is really something that's focused on advanced economies um, because it's really in advanced economies where we have the highest level of consumption and often um, significant levels of, of wasteful energy consumption. And so there's huge scope there for energy efficiency, but also just behavior change that brings us more to, um, let's say, a sober level of energy consumption that's not sacrificing uh, any significant quality of life. It's just um, bringing us uh, within uh, let's see, a boundary that allows us to achieve net zero um, without um, without making any major compromises. So here we're just talking about things such as as simple as putting your washing out in the line to dry in the sun rather than running a dryer on a, on a nice sunny day or things such as taking a bike for a small trip, um, but also looking at, say, uh, larger scale transport choices. So we've seen the French government recently uh, enact legislation to say there's not going to be any domestic flights that can be covered by rail within, I think it's a three hour window. And so things like that, that really orient consumers to more low carbon option in their, in their daily activities, uh, absolutely critical to achieving these net zero targets. I think it's um, really interesting that interaction between, you know, individual choice, I guess, you know, cultural expectations, but then they also the kind of the guardrails that are put up by leaders, including political leaders and governments, but also, you know, leaders from all, all sectors. Um, again, those can evolve and do evolve very significantly over time. And so there's probably a journey to go on, Tim, to, to get to the world that you describe where there is that consciousness around some of these choices and what the broader societal implications are. Um, it's an in, important journey to go on. The other thing that sort of strikes me around the, the you know, the shaping of markets, I've been fascinated what, watching, um, I guess, you know, the decision of, for example, the UK uh, government to phase out uh, uh, internal Combustion mm. engines. I think it's 2035. They've said that no more will be sold by by, and uh, they framed it as effectively a market mechanism. And the market mechanism is well, we're going to ban them. <laughs> we're going to tell you we're going to ban them, market. And so you, it's up to you um, in the in the um, the automo- automotive industry to come up with a compelling suite of products that you know, you know consumers in in Britain are going to be excited to purchase um, over the coming 15 years. Um, it's it's. Slightly different way to the way we tend to think about market mechanisms here in Australia Absolutely. but yeah. it is it is it is shaping the market and giving clear signals about where we're heading and you know um, relying on the 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 create creativity of the the capitalist model to respond accordingly right absolutely and look and it seems to be 
to be working. I guess the the European Commission. You, you probably heard uh, in the recent webinar they're they're doing very similar things, setting the uh, emission standards for vehicles to a to a certain threshold that means that basically you can't be selling an internal combustion engine vehicle. It has to be an electric vehicle. And um, and with the way automotive um, manufacturers have responded, they're bringing the models to the market. The consumers are getting excited about it. The governments are, are developing or helping to develop the charging infrastructure. And so. It's uh, it's definitely a, a field of transition that's um, let's say in a more advanced stage um, in in certain regions of the world and and has the potential to to reach that stage everywhere and and the milestone well I guess the the backstop that we put in um, in terms of zero sales of um, of internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035 at a global level. Um, really, that sends a, a pretty strong signal that we're going to need all countries to put in place very similar le- legislation if we are going to get to net zero. So I think that's that's one thing that's often difficult for us to conceive when we're looking at such transitions is the inertia that, that's in the energy system and the long lives that many of our energy products have. If we think many of us will probably hold on to our car for at least 10 years. And so if we're not buying an electric vehicle in the in the early 2030s, there's a high chance that that car is still going to be running when we get to 2050. So the sooner we can change that um, and, and get in place this, this legislation, the better. All right. Well, that's all we, we have uh, time for. Tim, it has been great to catch up. Um, it is uh, really crucial and urgent work that the IEA is doing right now um, uh, and something which um, has been recognised um, just yesterday as we record with uh, your executive director, Fatih Birrell, being listed in Time magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2021. I don't know uh, how many times in the past an, an IAED has made a Time magazine best of list. Uh, maybe you can illuminate that. It might be a first. <laughs> it might be a first. <laughs> Absolutely. But it just goes uh, to how central uh, the IEA has become to the conversation around the energy and climate transition and all the hard work, um, not just by your great ED, but by the entire organisation. So congratulations for that. And we hope you keep it up for a long time to come. Thank you so much, Luke. And thanks for the opportunity to, to join you today. And great discussion. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find the International Energy Agency at, you guessed it, IEA. And my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at ec.org.au and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon. Oh, 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 oh,